We are in a study in Exodus, and the title in the section this morning is, is The Covenant is Confirmed, which if you have been uh, with us uh, over the past several weeks, and if you've been listening, in fact, the more you've been with us and the more you've been listening, you might find yourself saying, didn't we already do this? Didn't we already talk about the covenant? <clears throat> Haven't we already been here? And you're, you're right at one level. Uh, I mean, the Ten Commandments were last week. The arrival of the mountain was the week prior. And covenantal language was spoken in both of those chapters. So, so you're right to hear it again. Uh, but it's not simply repetition. In fact, what I want to show you is that when we behave in covenantal sorts of ways, when we enter into a pretty important contract or relationship, we often will uh, repeat in increasing depth certain concepts. Let me, let me show you with one that you're probably pretty familiar with. Marriage is a covenant. Okay, a covenant is like a contract that is relational and not transactional. So it's a more spiritual, far more relational idea than a contract, but they're similar. And marriage is a covenant. And when it's a covenant between two parties, two individuals, or two families, and when typically... Um, a guy wants to marry a girl, he proposes to her by saying, will you marry me? Which, hopefully she says, yes. Now, there's that agreement, will you marry me? And then there's the yes, but that doesn't make you married. It would be nice sometimes if that was was just that easy, but it's not that easy. In fact, sometimes people will precede that ceremony with the ceremony of the promise ring. They give a ring to say, essentially, I promise you that one day I'm going to ask you. Never quite understood that. Just ask them already. Save yourself a ring, for crying out loud. But, you know, again, the proposal, the engagement, does not a marriage make... Uh, Probably the next step along the way is going to get the wedding certificate, the license. You propose to this person, now you go to the clerk, and you apply for a license, and the clerk says, you can get married. Now you have agreement from the spouse and agreement from the state, but you're still not married. Then you get to the wedding ceremony itself, Right? And the wedding ceremony starts off the very first time, typically, that the bride and the groom speak in a wedding ceremony is at the statement of intent. Happens pretty early, where the officiant says, do you take this woman to be so on and so forth? Love, honor, cherish for the rest of your life? I do. Likewise, turns to the bride, to you, and so on and so forth. Love, honor, cherish? I do. Married yet? No. Then the pastor or the officiant says some words about marriage. That doesn't marry you. Well, then you make the vows. Then there's vows. That's got to do it. But it doesn't. Or at least you keep doing stuff, so it must not. Right? If it did it, we would just call it good right there. 
But we don't. There's rings. There's some sort of unity sand or unity candle or unity this, that, or the other that has to express unity. You know, we got to unify everything. So there it is. Are you married yet? No, you haven't been pronounced. Fishian hasn't pronounced you. You can't be married. He pronounces you. Now are you married? Ah, not so quick. Haven't kissed. So you smooch it up in public. Now are you married? Are you married? It's iffy. You haven't had a reception. (laughs) Try canceling the reception and see how that goes. In fact, in a lot of cultures, the reception is, I mean, for us, it's a fun party. For many cultures, at many points in time, the merging and uniting of families is a huge part of the marriage. It shows agreement of the households for this wedding, for this union. And it's, sometimes that ceremony goes on for days. It's the preeminent ceremony. In fact, you won't find a wedding ceremony that much in Scripture. You do find the feasts, the receptions, so to speak. So now are you married? You've asked, you said yes. The state has said yes. You've expressed your intent to say yes. You vowed to say yes. The pastor talked about the yes. Your mom's unified everything about unity over the yes. Rings, kisses, pronouncements, receptions. Are you married? You still got to consummate it. It's the best part. Like that night. Do you know that you could do all of that, and if you don't consummate that marriage, it is annulled. Do you see how repetitious things that matter are? How when we are entering into an important covenant, we will go around and around, deeper and deeper on an idea. Because we're trying to drum into our souls the gravity of what's happening. And we'll do this not just for weddings, not just for covenants. You'll find this is even the case in contracts. You ever try to buy a car? Whew, you got to sign a lot of paperwork. And you'll find yourself going, didn't I already sign that? Well, no, this one says, you know, if you're closing a house, you got to sign three pieces of paper just verifying your name. I think I entered into a covenant with Pennsylvania when I got a driver's license. I had to sign so much paperwork. I have some covenantal relationship with the governor. Is that painful? In important contracts, there is a, a deepening spiral nature to it. And that's what, you're, that's what we have here in Exodus. Exodus 24, if you'll turn there. It's page 56 in your Bibles. We are confirming the covenant today. A covenant that has been mentioned and inferred and spoken about and agreed upon and intent has been expressed. All sorts of things have already been done. Today we're really doing it, I guess you would say. And I don't want you to perceive repetition as redundancy. This is a deepening picture of a very important idea. Um, While you're turning to Exodus 24, here's a brief story of Exodus. If you're new with us, you really ought to read it. It's just a few pages, and it's exciting reading. Exodus is the story of God saving Israel from Pharaoh. So he saves them out of Egypt from the the bondage of Pharaoh. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. 
He closes the water behind him, and God shows himself. This is Exodus 1 through 15. God displays himself as Savior, as Rescuer, as Redeemer. But we can say Israel might not be Pharaoh's anymore, but that doesn't mean that Israel belongs to God yet. They may not belong to Pharaoh, but they haven't entered into any specific relationship with God by that point. But then you get Exodus chapters 16, 17, and 18, where they're moving through the desert and the wilderness on the way to the mountain. And that section of the book describes God's provision. God guides them through the wilderness. God gives them water. God gives them food from heaven. God fights for them. He's their provider. But still, they are not his. It seems as though he has given himself to them. He has expressed his intent to them to make them his people, but they have not officially been tied in as his people yet. And then we get to the 19th chapter. They arrive at the mountain of God, and that's in the 19th chapter is where the conversational language of covenant begins to surface. God saying, I will be your God if you will be my people. And the people say, yeah, we like that. Let's do that. And Moses, this is where Moses starts to go up and down the mountain. I said earlier, Moses should have had a Fitbit because he'd have broken every record of, you know, mountain climbing. He's always going up and down the mountain. He goes up the mountain. The people said yes. God says, okay, go back down the mountain, tell them I'm going to say something, but not to be on the mountain when I say it or they'll die. So he goes down the mountain. Everybody get off the mountain. They get off the mountain. Goes back up the mountain. They're off the mountain. God says, are you sure they're off the mountain? He says, they're off the mountain. No one's on the mountain because you know they're going to die. Off the mountain. We have it. They're off the mountain. God speaks so that everybody can hear, and the people once again say, yes, yes, we'll do it, but please stop speaking to us because your voice is terrifying, and we're scared. Can Moses just keep going up and down for us? And Moses goes, God. And he starts to go up and down again as a relay. So God says, I want to be in covenant with you. The people say, I want to be in covenant with you. God then speaks the Ten Commandments, kind of the, the lead notion of the covenant over the people. They say, Yes, we're in for this covenant. Just don't do that anymore. But we're in. And then Moses goes back up the mountain. And this is chapter 21. God starts to give more instruction. So chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Chapter 21, 22, and 23 is, uh, some would call it case law. Uh, Others call it the Book of the Covenant. It's a larger body of work that in many ways applies the Ten Commandments within everyday life of the Jews. Here's Here's how the law works itself out in daily life. That's 21, 22, and 23. God is very concerned with how you and I behave towards one another because how you and I behave towards one another has a lot to say with what we think of him. When God tells me not to covet your house, that has a lot to do with how I view God. Because when I covet, 
I am expressing dissatisfaction with the lot that God has given me. Do not covet. The positive side of that is be satisfied in my provision for you. And so God God is intimately concerned with our exchange of one another because the way I treat you and the way you treat me has a lot to do with the way we view God. And so there's this book of the covenant. And we arrive at last to the 24th chapter where Moses has heard all of the covenant, apparently. He's heard the whole covenant. And now the Lord is, I don't know if he's sending him down, but it's something like this. He's sending him back down to the people. Okay, let's look at 24, verse 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, that's the Lord, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So the instruction to Moses is go down and get 70 elders of Israel, okay, the representatives of Israel. God is going to invite representatives of Israel to come. It says to come up the mountain but not come close. So I don't know if that means come halfway up, but come up at a distance. But these are these individuals are representing the nation of Israel by proxy. Allow them to come with me. Also allow the priest Aaron and his two sons who will serve as priests, Nadab and Abihu, allow them to come up. So there's the people of Israel coming up and the first tell of the priesthood. It's not, none of this is really set in stone yet, literally, uh, but allow them to come up as well. Okay, so bring all of what Israel is up, but not close. Only you, Moses, can come close to me but I want them to be on the mountain. That's, that's the picture there. So verse 3, Moses came and told all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right, so are they in covenant yet? So Moses must understand more than what is actually said here because God says, go bring these people to the mountain, but Moses does a lot more. Okay, so more was probably said between him and God, but nonetheless, Moses goes to the people and the first thing he does is he speaks to them the words, presumably, of Exodus 21, 22, and 23. The book of the covenant. He tells them that orally. He says, here's what God said. And they hear what God says, and they say, we like that, and we'll do that. Okay. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8, kind of slowly, because a lot happens. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's the first thing he did. He rose early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, I'll add again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So I just want to get this straight with you. Moses comes down. Moses speaks before all the people. He speaks the words of the covenant to all the people. And the people say, we'll do it. I might liken this to the statement of intent at a wedding. Here's the words. They say, we'll do it. Then, I don't know if it's that night. I, you know, I, I have an image in my mind, but it's, you can build an image in your mind just as easily. He then he writes those words down into a book. And early the next morning, he wakes up and he does several things. First thing he does is he builds an altar. The altar represents God's presence. And around the altar or before the altar, uh, you know, it's, it's just a picture in my mind, are 12 pillars of stone, each representing the tribes of Israel. So that you might say, in the fashion of stone, God is present and Israel is present. Then, Young men, right, we don't have Levites yet doing Levite work, so to speak. So I think the young men of the camp are kind of standing in for the role of the, the Levites right now. They go out and they get oxen and bulls and they slaughter them. And uh, offerings are offered. It says burnt offerings are offered and peace offerings are offered. Those are two different kinds of offerings among the Hebrews. And they often travel together. Burnt offerings are typically dealt with dealing with sin and peace offerings typically deal with fellowship or, or worship. And they go together. And since burnt offerings lead in front of, we satisfy God, we, satisfy, we atone for our sins, we account for our wrongdoing on the way to fellowship. That's the picture. Is the burnt offerings are dealing with our sins, they're covering up the, the guilt of our sins, and then the peace offerings are therefore make peace with God. That's the picture. And they often travel together. So what you're seeing right now is a pattern that has continued in the life of the Jews. And a lot of blood is produced out of this. You can imagine all these young men going out and bringing back all these oxen and all these sacrifices. And of the blood, half of the blood is thrown on the altar of God. You Remember, it's the altar represents God. So half of the blood is thrown on the altar of God to make, sat- make satisfaction for sin and to create fellowship. And then I would like to say that the other half of the blood, it says it's put in basins. But I would like just to zip to the end and say the other half of the blood is sprinkled on the people. But something happens in the middle. Moses pour, puts half of the blood on the altar and then he does what? He reads the law that he just spoke yesterday. At some point in me, he goes, didn't we do this already? 
you're just reading what you said yesterday. But in the midst of all of this, Moses reads the book of the covenant that he just wrote, to which the people say, we will surely obey the Lord in this. We'll do this. All the words that we've heard, we will do. At which point, Moses then sprinkles the people. The, the pattern that, that gets established in the Old Testament, they would dip a hyssop branch in the blood and they would sprinkle. And I know it's, it probably sounds violent to us. We're kind of a bloodless society. It sounds icky. Um, but this is highly covenantal. This, this, the, the fact that something would have to die to account for sin, the fact that something has to die to account for God to be able to come close to man, all of that's taking place here. And God is covered, God's covered in it in the picture of the altar. And now the people are sprinkled with it. You would, I don't know if they were paraded by, I don't know exactly how it worked, but they were sprinkled with the blood. I think you have to see Christ in this. He's all over this. First Peter, when Peter writes his letter, First Peter, First Peter 1, 2, so the very opening of the letter, Peter is writing to the elect, the exiles who have been dispersed throughout Asia, and he says, you've been called into obedience with Christ through the sprinkling of his blood. What do you think Peter's thinking of? Through the sprinkling of his blood. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes a huge deal of this. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, goes on and on and on to say that for years, annually, priests would have to go in and sprinkle blood, and that blood was never really effectual. It says the blood of these animals never really atoned for any real sin. They were standing in. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and then Christ came and made the old order obsolete. Through his own blood, through the sprinkling of his own blood, he forgives sin. We might say, in no small way, baptism, I don't want to say it shows up here, but I also don't want us to miss the major covenantal themes that pass through when we talk about baptism. When we come to faith, we are marked through baptism. We're marked. Baptism has in it a covenantal mood, a covenantal expression. I mean, more is happening. There's other images, but it, there's covenantalism is certainly here. We are, this is why in the Great Commission we would be told to go make disciples of all nations and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we're bringing people who are outside of the covenant into the covenant. Some of our sister denominations who don't immerse they sprinkle. And they point to passages like this in Scripture, some of them, to say it's because it's covenantal. No. 
while I may come out with a different answer at the end of the day as to what's the best way it ought to look, I get that. That to me is like a good, wrong answer. It, what I mean to say is, is they see a truth in it. They see almost like the dip the hiss of, I am in the covenant of Christ through faith. I'm all turmoil inside right now because I want to I wanna challenge. We, there's so many different versions of baptism. Right? We're, we're kind of barely a Baptist church. I mean, we're Baptist theologically, but we have such an eclectic makeup. So many different folks here who came from so many different views of baptism. You know, all of the particulars aside, and I have a huge heart of mercy and patience for people who were obedient in the form of baptism of their former days and are trying to work through that. But all of that aside, I just want to say this this is a covenantal act of obedience. This is what we do when God becomes ours and we become God's. We mark it. And it's not a little deal. It's a pretty intense moment. And so, you know, somewhere I just want to say, like, why haven't you? There. Let's keep going. So, wait, are they in covenant? Not yet. Almost. Look at 9 through 11. These are some, these are three wonderful and annoying verses. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Can you imagine that? They saw the God of Israel. So to which my next question is, what did he look like? Right? Here's what he looked like. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Isn't that frustrating? What does God look like? I'll tell you about the platform he walked on. Can you imagine, if you were one of these elders, what a jerk you would be? You come all the way back down the mountain, and your wife says, what happened? You say, I saw the Lord. Like, you're lying in bed, and I saw the Lord, and she says, tell me all about it. What did he look like? And you say, well... He had a platform of sapphire, the heavens for clearness. And she goes, what does that even mean? And you go, ah, there's part of this is like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, But there's another part of it where the invisible nature of God is so, so carefully dealt with in Scripture so that we might not fall prey to image and so that we might await the one who is the true image of the invisible God. The Old Testament hides God so well so that when Christ is born, the perfect, exact representation, him. As it is here, we see he walked on this blue, clear, heavens for clearness is like a super clear. That's as clear as the sky is what it's saying. There's this meeting between the people and God, 
And what do they do? Look at 11. Well, 10. Like the very heavens for clearness, it says, and they did not lay his, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. Did you see a meal coming? I didn't. I mean, of all the things, gallons of blood have been thrown everywhere. Come on up a mountain, sapphire platform, and they sit down for a meal. And the the writer's intent here is to say they saw God, and notice, and he did not lay his hand on them. The Old Testament perspective was to be in the presence of God is to die. And so the writer here is emphasizing, you need to understand, the next day they go up the mountain and they meet God. They are in the midst of his presence and they survived. He was with them. Not only did they survive, they had a meal. What does that remind you of? Lord's Supper? You ever wonder why is the Lord's Supper? Why is such an important we do we're not that high church. We don't have a lot of formality to us. We do baptism and we do the Lord's Supper. Do you ever wonder why two one of the two really big things we do is a meal? Why God chose that? Well we might say Christ selected the meal because Christ is doing this. I think Christ has Exodus 24 in his head when he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. He says, I am entering into a new covenant with you. There's a new meal with the fullness of the deity and bodily form present. But still, that doesn't answer why the meal Well, I think kind of like a wedding. Kind of like among some peoples, how the importance of the reception plays in a very important role of the families. This contract is valid by the fact that the families can come together. The mutual celebration of the families validates the vows that were taken. They were not taken under duress, and they are taken with the mutual consent of all parties. And how do we know that? Because the families come together and rejoice. There's something like that at work here. That what's happening is, in entering into covenant with people, God is now saying, what is being expressed now is, is now I can be with you. Now I, the unapproachable God who reigns at the top of the mountain, who has to descend to get to the peak of the mountain, and who you can't even touch the foot of the mountain, I, that God, the one you said, please don't talk because my voice alone is enough to strike your soul. I, that very God, through covenant with you, am now able to unite at the table with you. This is the purpose of the covenant. This is, you might say this is the consummation of the covenant at some level. 
this is the expression that the covenant actually did something. The, the role, when people say the Old Testament is just a bunch of rules, it's because you haven't read the Old Testament. This is a narrative describing God's desire to be with us. To come off the mountain. In fact, the very next thing that's going to happen in chapter 20, the end of 24 and 25, is going to say, okay, Moses, come on back up. We've got to talk. I want you to build me a tabernacle because I'm going to travel with you everywhere you go. Where you go, I go. From this point on, I'm with you. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will tabernacle in the day. I will be with you. I will guide you. You'll never be apart from me because we are now covenanted together. This is, this, is, this is a momentous moment where from this point on, God is theirs and they are God's. That is the purpose of covenant. And somewhere in there are rules, and somewhere in there are statutes. We want to know God's nature. We want to know his intent for us. And in there is God's story of salvation and his story of provision for us. All of that's there, and it's, it's, it's real. The goal is fellowship. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was the, the picture of the consequence of their sin is you have to leave the garden. You have to go. This, this is the reversal of that. This is, I've been satisfied by the blood. I'm at peace with you because of the blood. We are now in covenant, so come close. I'll close with this thought. This is a, just to maybe help some of you respond. I, I find in the church, there, you know, there's all sorts in the church, but sometimes it boils out two sort of extreme perspectives. One is the person in church who understands everything in the Bible, they have all the right answers. And that's not a bad person. Like, because you're not bad because you, you know something about the Bible. It, but you have the answers. You're studious. You understand church and how it works, so you look good here. You have the right language, right? But you don't have fellowship with God. And I'm here to say you've stopped short. You've missed the mark. It, knowing, knowing God is not about rules. It is not about being well-behaved. It's about fellowship with him. Somewhere in there, our behavior is part of our relationship, just like it is with every other relationship but it is about relationship. That's the one extreme. On the other extreme, you have someone who says, I long, I long for the fellowship of God. I long to be known by him and to be close with him. I see the way that you seem like you're friends with the Lord or that you have a personal relationship with the Lord, but I long for that, but I can't, alas, because of my sinfulness or alas, because of my scarredness. If, if you knew who I was, you would understand that there really is no place for me in the house of God. And then I'm here to say that this picture in Exodus 24 is blown out of the water by what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is a better Moses. He's a better sacrifice. He comes farther down the mountain. He doesn't stop halfway. Christ himself comes all the way down to the foot of the mountain, goes into the homes of sinners and tax collectors, and eats with them. That's what he does. His goal is to bring you into fellowship. And <clears throat> I don't mean to pile guilt upon guilt, but if you think your sins are so great as to bar you from Christ, 
you think far too much of yourself and far too little of him. There's sinful arrogance in that, profound arrogance, that somehow your sin supersedes the blood of Jesus. He is not a bull. He's the son of God. And he came for you. And then there's all of us in the middle who on Monday were close and on Tuesday were far. Wednesday were righteous and Thursday were undeserving. God has come to bring us into his friendship and to put us at his table. Let's bow our heads, if you would. I've asked the worship team to come up and play an instrumental of an old hymn. This is the lyrics of this old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see, for my cleansing this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want to offer you just a verse, just an instrumental verse for you to respond to the Lord. There's sin that's in the way that you might know, truly know today that the blood of Christ is effective as a burnt offering and as a peace offering before the Lord. God is satisfied. Satisfied so much as to long for union with you. And if you're here today and you know all the answers in the book, I'm here to say you have missed the mark if you have not climbed up to meet God and know Him. case, we'd feel your love, your acceptance, your satisfaction through your son. I pray this, Lord, so that we could be a people who live in covenant with you, so that you could dwell with us and be with us. You could tabernacle among us and make us who you want us to be. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name.